Welcome to episode two of the newly formed Fisherman's Post podcast series. My name is Gary Hurley, owner and publisher of Fisherman's Post. Hopefully you're familiar with Fisherman's Post, coming at you since 2002 with fishing newspaper, fishing tournaments, fishing schools, and now the newly formed Fisherman's Post podcast series. Uh, the idea of our podcast, much like our fishing school designed to help people catch more fish more often, encourage people to go fishing, and promote the captains and guides and fishing businesses that depend on a healthy fishing community. Um, on our last episode, hopefully you enjoyed Captain Tim DeSano talking about early spring red drum on live bait. Um, we're here with episode two. Before we move to episode two, though, and looking backwards, I'm joined here with Billy Thorpe, Thorpe Creative. What's happening, Gary? Good to be back. Good to be back. Week two, we made it through week one, so we're professionals already. Right? It's perfect. All downhill. <laughs> yeah, easy. Easy peasy. Well, Billy, I got a question for you. I get it, man. Let's go. You were here. You were here by my side listening to Tim talk in detail about slip float rigs targeting live red drum. I mean, targeting red yes. drum with live bait. So I just want to see if you're paying attention. All right. I got a quiz question for you. <laughs> What size treble hook does Tim like to use on his slip float rigs? Hmm. All right, this is a good one. Let me get back into my memory. I remember him holding it up. It was a number six. You looked at my notes. I did. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you told me there might be a quiz question. I peeked at your notes. I went back and found it in the video. <laughs> I'm a cheater. I, that's why we started this podcast to learn how to do stuff faster. So I'm like, I got to answer this question and get ahead of Gary. I like your resourcefulness. I'll have to applaud that. <laughs> um, you got any more? I don't. I don't have any other pre-made quiz questions. <laughs> right, but cool. what, I, what I do want us to do, which we didn't do in the first episode, what I do want us to do, as we mentioned, is offer a contest. Yeah, so we are. We're going to do um, a contest, and it's going to be a photo contest. So Fisherman's Post is obviously uh, relies heavily on photos, and so we want to get those photos, and then we also want to promote those photos um, on our show, on our Instagram, Facebook, all those places. And so how you enter to win is you are going to text your photos to 910-431-5521. Once again, that's 910-431-5521. And it's going to be staff picks. So Gary and I are going to look at them and see what we like the best, and and we're going to put it on here and and give you your, your five minutes of fame. So, yeah. Awesome. So we want that junior angler focus. Oh, junior angler. Yeah, I forgot about that. Sorry about that. We want a junior angler focus for this contest. And so Fisherman's Post relies on current photos, recent photos. Now, for this contest, though, we're not saying it needs to be recent. We're just looking for your favorite junior angler photo. If you would submit to us your favorite junior angler photo. And if you're familiar with Fisherman's Post, you know we like caption information. So we're going to ask you to include some caption information. That would be our junior angler's name, age, where from, what you caught, caught on what, and where you caught it. And, of course, with all that information, you can be somewhat protective. And I mean, geolocation, <laughs> if you can put that in there. And you can be somewhat protective <laughs> of that information, but certainly you can give us something as far as the captain information goes. And then also, in the evolution of this podcast series, we're more, we're more dialed in to thanking our sponsors. Which I'm going to do right now. That was my segue. You just looked at me. It's perfect. It was yeah. perfect, man. We're getting this. It's awesome. So I'm going to go ahead and just shout out right now to, uh, first of all, Pin Pin Fishing. We're all pretty familiar with those guys. Make amazing products offshore, inshore. Uh, really, you can just abuse the stink out of their stuff, Gary, and it's like it's awesome. I mean, all my Pin stuff is perfect. It works great. So anyway, guys, check out that. And then also, um, this is, and Rick is probably going to tell us a little bit more about these lures, um, but Island lures right here. So these are changed a little bit. I think it, traditionally they're made out of nylon hair. You put, you know, put the skirt over the bait and, um, I'm just talking a bunch of stuff. I don't know that I hope to learn on this podcast, but <laughs> so anyway, uh, but yeah, so now they got a new design so you can do a bunch of different colors and I'm going to let Rick tell us a little bit more about those as well, since, uh, this is a product that he, he loves. So yeah, man, that's our sponsors. Go support those guys. Well, let me introduce our captain today. We are talking today to longtime friend, Captain Rick Croson of Living Waters Guide Service. Uh, Rick came to Wilmington, Wrightsville Beach area via the Outer Banks. He spent a lot of time in Kill Devil Hills, Oregon Inlet. 
Now he's fishing a custom 33-foot center console, near shore and offshore, but more focused on the offshore. Again, I can't, he has been a friend since even before the paper started. I, I could go into that, but it would bore you. Um, Rick Croson, welcome to the show. You're going to talk to us about blackfin tuna. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Well, Rick, it is your lucky day because word got out that you were going to be our captain host today. Word got out. And so some of our viewers actually emailed in with some questions they would like to, us to ask you just to these better get to know our captain. Though, right? Okay, these are about fishing though, right? <laughs> well, let's just, go, that would... <laughs> let's just go to the questions. Okay. Viewer number one wrote in. Rick Croson, what would you do with a million dollars? Um, <laughs> I would catch two bluefin tunas at the same time. <laughs> that is a fantastic answer. <laughs> On the spot. A great, uh, a great answer. Viewer number two wrote in. Mm. Viewer number two would like you to finish this sentence. <laughs> the sound of skinning a blackfin tuna is like the sound of blank. <laughs> Nothing. It makes no noise at all. <laughs> all right. I think viewers are satisfied. I think we now have a better view of Rick Croson. I got more. Afraid. I got more questions, but maybe we'll save yeah. those for, epi for our, our next episode together. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> Rick, save me. Let's talk about blackfin tuna. Let's, let's talk about blackfin tuna since they're such a... Uh, uh, prolific sport fish and game fish and uh, one of the best eating fish here and we have a great population of them well get us started man like where are we going to go like you know i guess we got to find the fish first it doesn't matter if you do everything right if you don't find the fish but uh you know set me up tell me tell me about even the the habit like them when they're off our coast all right so here you go so <clears throat> i love tuna fish of all species but uh, we have um a huge population of blackfin tunas uh, directly off our coast. N not the same north of us or south of us. Uh, our population of fish is just unique. Um, we basically have them from September through May. Um, they winter off our coast. They like really cold water. Um, once the water gets above, say, mm, I'm going to say 78, 79 degrees, they pretty much start to migrate north. And then they come back in the fall when it gets down to about the same temperature, 77, 76. Um, um, but they, they make some uh, unique uh, food changes while they're with us. Um, so I don't want to speak too much about the winter fishery because we're getting ready to start a great spring fishery. Um, but when they get here in the fall in September, they're eating all kinds of mackerels and fish-type uh, animals. And as it gets colder and colder, they start eating more um, squid and invertebrates down low in the water column. Um, totally unique uh, compared to any other tuna. Okay. Um, once the spring gets here, like now, once the water gets into that uh, low 70, mid 70 range, they, they change their complete style of what they're hunting for. Instead of squid, which they have to eat maybe you know, 10 or 12 squid to get the same calorie content as one flying fish, um, as soon as those flyers get here, they know that they can eat that and gain a lot of fat and a lot of size quick. And so that's why they're, that's why they change food source. So, and so I guess what we're going to talk about is since they're changing food source, that's going to affect how you target the species, the spring species. That's right. Yeah. So in the wintertime, you basically have to think about the food that's available here and and fish for them you know deeper and and you can still troll and jig and pop at times um, but that's a when they get here in the fall it's a different kind of deal so starting from right now today if the weather was calm today and we could go offshore um what i'm looking for um first of all i want to know that their primary food source is going to be a flying fish when they get here until that it's going to be squid and mackerels and other fish and um, knowing that I can, um, I can go out there with my arsenal set up where I have popping rods, I have jigging rods, I have trolling rods, um, and now I can go hunt them. Okay, um, spring fish are dependent, in my opinion, they're dependent on rocks. Um, and what I mean by that is the 
edge of the continental shelf where there is a big piece of structure where the current can hit that piece of structure and create an upwelling, okay? Um, which we're uh, blessed to have big places like the Samol, the Steeples, um, Swansboro Hole, uh, Big Rock, um, places that everybody kind of knows that are on the map. Um, with that in mind, there are a bunch of smaller places. Any rock or piece of structure that will create an upwelling will um, generally uh, congregate blackfin tunas. Okay. So, Does that make sense? Yeah, man, that makes sense. So I'm learning, you know, every day. So with bottom fishing, you're actually looking for that smaller rock, that smaller bottom, because the others are overfished. Is overfishing a factor with the more well-known uprisings you just mentioned? Not as not as bad because the fish are pelagic, so they're congregating at certain times and then they're moving along. So there's always a new group of fish kind of moving through. Um, what you don't want to do is go to a big place like the like the steeples, for instance. I love the steeples, um, but as you fish the steeples and more and more boats are, show up as the spring goes on, um, it'll drive those fish uh, down in the water column or to the edges of the structure. So what I don't want to do is go to the steeples right across the big rock and go, okay, they're not here, and then you know move around a lot looking or you know just giving up on that place. Um, the other thing I want to make sure to do is I want to know which way the current's coming on each piece of structure. So if it's making a, a you know um, an eddy where the water is going south instead of north like it should be, I need to know that. So that I know what place on the steeples would have the best current rip and the best uh, um, upwelling. Um, and the reason I keep saying upwelling, blackfin tunas eat so much more than all the other tunas combined. They eat small stuff. They eat big stuff. They eat invertebrates. They eat um, uh, stuff that's bigger than their mouth. It's the only tuna that I know of that actually eat stuff bigger than their maw. So they, they can chase down mackerels and they're going to attack a mackerel and just get the pieces of it. They don't, they're not worried about swallowing the whole thing like a yellowfin or a big eye. Um, so knowing where all those little current you know, breaks would be is, is more important than going to a big spot. And as the boats get there, obviously things are gonna change where instead of trolling over them, might not be effective. Jigging might be super effective because they're down in the water column. So is trolling usually plan A? I mean, when you pull up to, when you first get out there, you've got your mark, you get out there, you're starting to look at the electronics and you're putting out a spread as you figure out your best play for the day? Yeah, so I run charters um, two different ways. And if I was telling the general public how to go find a black fintuna, what I would say is put out your trolling spread first. What that does is it gives you a wide net, okay? It gives you like the shotgun approach to fishing. I can put out multiple options and I can go at a fast clip and I can look at all those rocks I'm talking about. So for instance, we go to the same, uh, the steeples. At the steeples, that piece of structure in a square is probably a two mile square. Okay, so now I can put my chart, my spread out. I can roll all around uh, the bottom looking at all the different pieces that I know of and I'm gonna, you know, kind of mentally mark, okay, on this edge, there's a good school I'm marking down 100 foot. Um, and then I may catch some, I may not. Um, the great thing about blackfins is they, they like lures and they like ballyhoos, sea witches, cedar plugs, diving plugs. Um, they really, they, they respond to a lot of different offerings. So you can tailor a spread um, that has all different kinds of things in it to kind of find out what they're feeding on. That gives you another clue on how to catch them better once you do find them. Um, and then once you find them, then you can change over and go to jigging or popping. Um, and we can talk about that here in a minute. But finding them is my approach would be putting on a spread, either lures or ballyhoo or a combination, and really taking your time and looking at every one of those rocks and mentally making notes okay there's a school on this edge there's a school on this edge there's a school on this edge and then once i have the place mapped out with my trolling spread whether i've caught them or not i know how i can attack it whether it's um every time i cross this rock with this pattern i get bit on these two baits well so do i need to add more of these baits to my spread and make them tight where i can make more passes over that rock or 
every time I pass this rock, one bait in particular gets bit, and it's a, a squid imitation. Okay, so now I know that if I show up to that rock and and cross it in a in a drifting pattern, I could probably catch them on a jig more effectively because I can stay on top of them longer. Um, that's the kind of things you're trying to cipher when you're when you're trolling around just looking for the school. And for the for the general angler, you know, for the non-charter, for the general angler who's going out there and you know trying to follow this advice, how easy is it going to be for them? on their electronics to know, all right, those are blackfin. Okay. So blackfins um, on most machines um, mark as a cloud or what I would consider a, like a cloud. Um, what you'll generally see uh, when you cross a rock is you'll see uh, scattered stuff on the bottom, which could be your bottom fish, your bait fish, that kind of stuff that's down real low, say from the, from the very, very bottom up 25, 30 feet. Okay, then you're going to start marking amberjacks because all the big rocks in North Carolina have big amberjacks on it and little amberjacks and almaco jacks and just all kinds of jacks. Hey, okay, hold so on those are one second. Let me interrupt. Yeah. Billy, Billy, were you aware that there are amberjacks out there on those rocks? <laughs> Did you know that? Uh, yeah, I broke a rule. I, I, when we went fishing with Rick, actually, I um, <clears throat> told us don't go to the bottom. You'll stir up the amberjacks, make the sharks mad and uh, toward the end of the trip. After I was already exhausted, I'm like, I'm going to catch an amberjack, and I broke the rule, and I wish I wouldn't have. Rick, you remember that? Do you remember? I remember that, yes. And when he was puddled up in the bottom of the boat, something about, <laughs> why didn't Zach help me? We didn't video it, but um, I think he, you know, he definitely got his man card taken from him that day. <laughs> an amberjack. Well let's, well, let's go back. So the amberjacks are on the bottom. The other stuff, scatter baits on the bottom, bottom fish. And now what is that black fin mark? Oh, like a cloud? So think about it like a cloud, okay? So you see all those heavy hard marks down low. And then right above it, there'll be a cloud. Like It'll be defined edges, usually in a circle. Um, it'll be green or yellow with little specks of red all in the middle of the cloud. And typically, they're 30 to 50 feet above uh, all those bigger marks. Um, so for example, at the steeples, um, most of those rocks are anywhere from 250 feet to 350 feet. So a hundred feet down, for instance, that's where you're going to be looking for your cloud. Does that make sense? Yeah, man, that makes sense. All right. So you got your cloud, you scouted out the area, you're maybe picking up some fish. And so at what makes you think, all right, I should keep trolling because I'm picking up a few fish versus, man, maybe a different technique would really start okay. to produce numbers. Okay, so my rule of thumb is this. If, uh, you know, if, if you're um, a recreational weekender that likes to troll, which I do uh, as well, um, then, then all you're really doing is maximizing your spread to be able to stay on that school of fish that you marked and, and put the baits out that they're biting the best so that you maximize the number of bites you get. Um, for me, it's a little different because I like to jig and pop so much. Um, what I like to do is whatever is most effective that day. S for instance, if I'm trolling along and it's slick calm and um, I have um, – uh, I don't know, a, a great um, sight line where I can see flying fish in the distance, okay? I am going to throw a popper faster than anybody in this state because I know that once I find the fish, I can drift over them and throw poppers and make them come to me, and that's going to be a bigger class of fish, um, and it's also just a lot more fun, at least for me. Um, if I'm in a day where the current's really stiff, Okay, and it's big swell and a little bit more wind or cloud, you know, cloud uh, rain, that kind of thing around us um, where I can get above the fish and make a nice clean drift over them repeatedly. Um, I may stop and jig faster than trolling because trolling, you're going to get sprayed while you're trolling and all that kind of stuff. So that makes more um, influence on how I change my spread than, than necessarily just catching them. Cause I'm going to catch them all three ways most of the time. Well, I, I enjoy the troll. I enjoy the pop. I enjoy the jig. I mean, 
I've been on your boat. I love having all those options. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. I think if you gave me my choice, well, let's pop for them. So let's do that. Let's move into that, man. Give me a little, give me a little bit of setup with how I could make that happen. Catch, basically catch blackfin tuna on a top water popper, see the big blow up, see the visual and have a cool fight. All right. So there's two ways to do it. When you're thinking of blackfin specifically on poppers, um, first again is we had to find the fish. Okay. So we trolled around or whatever we did, or we went to all the different rocks and rode around until we found the schools. Okay. Um, the popper bite is really initiated two ways. It's initiated by there are flying fish in the area being pushed across the structure. And as they come across the structure, the tunas are coming to the surface, blowing them up, chasing them around. Um, and that can mean that the structure that you're on, we're, I'm going to keep using the steeples because we started there. Um, when you get to the steeples and you cross the edge of the continental shelf and you start looking at all the rocks, right before you get there, coming back towards shore, there's a big what we call flat area. Um, right before the roll, it goes from, say, 140 foot to, say, 200 foot before the rocks actually start. It's a mile and a half, two-mile zone in there before you get to the rocks. And when the flying fish are thick – a lot of times they know that the rocks have predators on them. So instead of you know rolling across with the tide and staying over those rocks, they're going to try and get away from the structure and swim across the flat. Okay, it makes sense. Well, once the first group of flying fish comes across the rock and those tunas start to feed, tunas are think, think of them as pack animals like a, like a dog. When you feed a dog, if you have a group of dogs, when you feed them, they all eat at the same time. That's kind of the rule of thumb is – um, you know, when something starts, um, the whole school kind of does the same thing. So, um, with that said, if a, a group of flying fish come in on a, on the tide that day, um, and flying fish, uh, start getting away from the tunas and drag them up on the flat, they're not going to be marking on the rocks. They're going to be on the flat. Those fish you're going to see visually by flying fish taking off and explosions around them, um, or you're going to see, um, fish completely air out. Um, or the other way to catch them is to, when you're on those rocks and you've marked them is to literally make a drift and keep your poppers directly on top of that school. You'll get a fish to come straight up from 120 foot to eat your bait. Um, just like you would trolling, except for now you're drifting and you can spend more time and if you have more multiple anglers, you can get multiple baits in their face at the same time that are all effective. Um, the, I guess the, the biggest the biggest thing about blackfins is um, typically they're all doing the same thing. So if you see them blowing up on flying fish, you need to be out on the flat fishing where those blow-ups are. Don't chase individual fish. Make them come to you. Make the noise. They're all going to be searching for that same noise. If they're on the rock and they're all in a tight ball, don't fish, you know, 100 feet away from them. They're basically – you're basically going to have to be right on top of them the entire time you catch them. So the more drifts you can make, the better off you are. So – yeah, man, I follow. And okay. am I able to bring them up from whatever depth? I mean, does it matter what depth I'm marking the black fins? Is there such a thing as them being too deep and it's just not going to happen? Or if there's – if I'm seeing flying fish – they're not going to be too deep. Yeah, if you're seeing flying fish, that, that's their number one food source when they get there. So they're going to definitely be um, relating to those pretty easily. Um, there are there are days when it is too deep. Um, so I typically tell people that 125 feet or or higher in the water column, those fish are going to eat a popper any given day. Okay, they may also eat a jig, um, and they may also eat a, a trolled bait. Um, but if I can find them 125 feet or higher in the water column, I feel like I can catch them at any time on a, on a popper. Um, and um, those fish, so there are days when you're riding around and you're fishing and you see tunas and you've got your trolling spread out and you cannot get a bite. Um, those fish, in my, in my personal experience, are literally using their auditory lateral line nerve to hear flying fish make their land. Okay, and that's what a popper is simulating is when a flying fish lands, he's got a big old dome head. And when he hits the water, it's usually not graceful. Um, and so they make that big splash. And when they land, that's what they're listening for. And a tuna will run to that splash noise and use their eyes to find them. 
And then they're so good at being a predator towards flying fish that they can literally jump them. So they they chase them up. Uh, the flying fish takes off using his uh, ability to fly or glide. And the tuna can literally chase his shadow while he's in the air. And right before he lands, either jump out of the water and eat him or as soon as he lands, jump out and eat him then. Um, they're super effective at it. It's pretty awesome to watch. If you haven't seen it, um, it's definitely something to put on your list, uh, you know, in the spring to go out there and look for tunas jumping. It's, it's super exciting. Man, uh, I'm seeing the stuff behind you. I'm guessing that you have a popper or two <laughs> that you can show us. I do. So um, I want to talk a little bit about um, the action of a popper. Um, so when I first started doing this um, out of Oregon Inlet, we all fished poppers really fast. Um, on days when we couldn't catch them any other way, we'd walk to the bow uh, of, the, of the big sport fishing boats, and we'd use our spinning rods, and we'd throw poppers as far as we could, and we would uh, basically skip them across the top, and you know, some days it worked, some days it didn't. Well, anyway, since uh, I've been doing this now for about 10 years and kind of learned some new tricks, um, there are two different kinds of top water what we call poppers okay so here are the two i want to discuss this one here has got a deep cup okay more of a traditional popper popper this is more of a stick bait okay it has um, a little bit of a cup in the face but it's primarily a 45 degree cut angle okay you work the baits basically the same way you want to throw them out they land on the surface okay and and when they do, they're gonna float just like this. You don't want them. You don't want them floating like this, um, or or in or you don't want them head down either. Um, and what you're gonna do is when it lands, you're going to make a nice fluid uh, sweep of the rod and make on a popper this particular popper. You're gonna make a big blurp noise, a big splash, pop. Okay. Okay. Then you're gonna let it sit there. Because a flying fish, when he lands, he doesn't make any more noise. He folds his wings in, he takes those big eyes, and he looks around and goes, oh, man, what just saw me land? Okay, makes sense? Yeah. yeah. Right, they don't land and they don't flop around. They don't make a lot of extra noise. So that's what I want to do. I want to throw it out there. I want to make one big splash. I want this thing to float on the surface, and I want it to just do this, bob, okay? It's leaving a perfect silhouette underneath. So when the fish looks up, he sees that splash or heard that splash and was going in that direction. He sees the silhouette of the bait, and that's how they stalk them. They know that when, they, when they're sitting there like that, they can get a running start and either jump them and chase them and then eat them as they land or eat it while it's sitting still because they're going so fast from underneath. Okay? Yeah. Um, the trick is this. Throw it out there. Let it sit there as long as you possibly can. It's nerve-wracking to most people. You throw a bait out there, you want to work it. Okay? On a popper, throw it out there, make a pop, do nothing. As you long as bit. you can. Are you talking 10 seconds? 20 seconds? I typically tell people uh, to count to 10. Okay. <laughs> Depends on the day. If you're catching black, if you're catching fish pretty fast, sometimes that 10, you know, that 10 count is a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Sometimes it's, you know, a 1, 2... I have taken rods to the bow of my boat when people are going too fast and I've thrown a popper out. I have splashed it hard, set the rod in the rod holder and walked to the back of the boat. And they're all looking at me like I'm crazy. And then all of a sudden the black fin eats it. And I'm like, somebody catch that fish for me. <laughs> nice. And he's also caught a sailfish by doing that. It, yeah. So it, the, popping is a super effective technique for any pelagic. I've caught wahoos, tunas, mahis, uh, sailfish, um, a white marlin. I've had a blue marlin try to eat it. Um, it, it. It's a great way to catch fish when they're on flying fish because you're mimicking exactly what a flying fish does to avoid predators. Um, uh, the key is, the key is if they're targeting all, uh, flying fish that day. And you can see them chasing flying fish. The popper is the number one way to fish for them. I follow. So, am I am I dependent on a big cast? How boat shy are these fish, man? Are they gonna are they gonna hit? Do I fish it all the way back in, or once you get kind of close to the boat, you know, you got to get it out there. You got to get some distance. 
So I like to throw it as far as I can. Obviously, you, you want to start with the most uh, with the most time. So when you're popping and let it sit, you want to let it sit. You want the, that cast to be as long as possible. Um, but actually, with you and your uncles on the boat one time, I actually watched a fish. Your uncle was on the bow popping his popper in, got it to within about I don't know ten feet from the boat. And as he went to lift the popper up, I don't know if you remember seeing this, but the, the blackfin jumped from underneath the bow and ate the popper out of his hand. I do remember. So, yeah. So, you know, fish are not boat shy. Fish are boat shy, whatever your belief is. I've had them eat it right next to the boat. I've had them days where you really need to bomb it out there and, and let it, uh, you know, get the get the motion going, get the, get the sound going before they find you. Um, and that's kind of the other key to popping is if you can get four or five guys doing it at the same time, you're making all the commotion that a whole school of flying fish would be. And you're actually drawing them by their, by their auditory nerves. You're bringing them to you. So as you're making your drift, you're bringing fish to you the entire time. Um, and then going back to this bait here, yes. where it has a little bit different head shape. So, there are days when you'll notice flying fish really aggressively taking off and making that big land. Sometimes you don't actually see the flying fish. You just see the tuna is crashing. Okay. That may not be a flying fish day. That might be little mackerels. That might be sardines. Um, that's more of this, uh, th when this bait's going to do a little better job, it's a little bit more subtle instead of having that big pop or, or blurb, what it's going to do is it's going to spit water. So the, the the cup or the the little bit of a cup and the angle, when it when you make that sweeping rod pull, it's actually going to sweep side to side like this and just kind of spit water. So you go, you know, one two real short quick, real short motion and make it spit side to side, okay, and then do the same thing. Let it sit as long as possible because it's still they're still going to eat it the same way. When it's sitting there bobbing up and down, leaving its um, silhouette, they're gonna they're gonna come from underneath and attack it straight up. Um, so there are two different, there are two different shapes that if I'm going to go popping specifically, I want both shapes. Usually one or the other will be better. Um, some days one will be the only thing they eat. Um, some days it doesn't matter. And does color matter? I mean, I, I follow everything you're saying about style, about the two different stylistic approaches. What about color? What about size? Size, um, black fins, like I say, eat stuff that's way bigger than their maw. So maw being uh, they know they can't eat the whole fish uh, or bait in one bite, that they're going to bite it, ram through it, get as much as they can, and then circle back around and eat the rest. Um, so size, I've had them eat uh, big giant poppers. Um, what I recommend to people is if you're looking at a popper, okay, this just happens to be a popper I like a lot has a big cup so i don't have to do a lot of action to it to make the pop but if you look at the physiology of the bait itself notice how it kind of it's big here and it tapers down the reason i like this is because as a tuna fish or any fish comes to eat the bait he doesn't have to collapse his jaw uh, very far to get the hook in his mouth um and so uh, I want a bait that has a really small tail section. I don't want to have the bit, you know, I don't want to have a real big bump at the back where when he's, he has to open his maw so big to get the hook in his mouth. And, and since that, these guys are feeding from the bottom, does the bottom color all that matters? Like, is it just about the profile that they're seeing? Like, is it the stuff on the top just to attract me, the consumer? Honestly, I have I have a lot of Japanese people that used to fish with me a lot when the when the yin was strong, and um, uh, they used Nemo colors and baits painted like watermelons and <laughs> uh, goldfish and kois. Um, I've caught fish on brown ones. I've caught fish on flying fish colored. I don't know that any color matters at all when it comes to popping, okay. because what they're seeing is the silhouette. Okay. Um, and let, we're, we're trying to cover a lot. Yep. I'm ready to move you into jigging unless yep. there's something that you need to get out to my audience about popping. I mean, I know you could talk for another couple of hours on popping, but in, unless there's some must have knowledge on popping, then maybe I push you into jigging a little bit. Yeah. So the, the last thing I'll say about popping, and it's going to be the same as jigging when you're making your drift, obviously you're, you're drifting with whatever influence is stronger, whether it's the tide or the wind. And some days it's the tide, so you're looking into the wind. 
Some days it's the wind, so you're 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 drifting with the wind versus the the tide. Um, if you cast into the wind, you can make a lot longer presentation because the slack in your line never never comes. You, you don't gain slack in your line, if that makes sense. Yeah. If you cast downwind and you're drifting with the wind, you start to gain slack pretty fast. Okay, so you make a pop and you're gaining slack real fast. So what I say to people is when you get bit, it's going to be a thing where you see it. If you're casting downwind, you need to make sure that you get all the slack out of the lure all the time. So as you get bit, you can crank tight and then set the hook real hard. Um, they're going to bite it, but when they bite it, they realize what it's it, what it is real fast. They're going to be trying to spit it. Um, if you're casting into the wind, drifting with it, where you don't create a lot of slack, it's a little easier. But also, also you don't cast as far because you're having to go straight into the wind. Okay. I follow all that. And you say same with jigging, same kind of, even though you're not casting, how does it affect the, the jigging operation? So in the jigging scenario, what you're creating is a belly in the line because the current is now hitting the line and creating a belly, whether it's under the boat or whether it's away from the boat. Um, so same scenario, it's easier on jigging because you're all, you're constantly taking the slack out and shorting, shortening the line as you bring it to the surface. Um, Jigging is also a little bit more of a of a what I call a rifle effect. So I talked earlier that uh, trolling was like my shotgun, where I can make a big spread and a big pattern and find out what they're wanting. Jigging is more of like your rifle, where you're looking through the scope and you go, okay, I know where they are. I know they're at 100 feet. They're on this rock. Okay, so now I can go there and I can use all of the tricks of jigging, being metered line, um, all of my um, my depth finder, my GPS, and I can stop directly on top of those fish. I can drop my jig um, directly in their face, okay? And I can keep it there, and I know that I'm in the strike zone the whole time. Okay. And if I remember correctly, if I'm marking fish at 150 foot deep, I'm not dropping 150 foot, or am I? Well, okay, so we're going to go back to those amberjacks that everybody loves so much. <laughs> yeah, fishermen's post-tradition. New hires have to go out and catch an amberjack. That's, that's right. And we don't tell them anything about it until they, get, until they start sweating and cursing and stuff. But So he, here's the thing about amberjacks and their relationship to blackfin tunas. Um, they love each other. Well, no. Amberjacks love blackfin tunas. Um, um, Amberjack will sit just below that school of tunas, kind of waiting for him to take his eye off the ball so that he can swallow him and eat him whole. Um, and you wouldn't believe the size of the blackfin that will get swallowed by a 100-pound amberjack. <laughs> well, I, I'm surprised right now. I thought you were going to say, hey, blackfins don't necessarily eat the whole fish, so they'll uh, take yeah. a piece of the fish. Yeah. The rest of it will drop down, and the amberjack are just waiting there and get free bits of mackerel, flying fish, whatever. Yeah. But that's the outcores and your, you know, other little junk fish. All but right. no, an amberjack wants that blackfin in his mouth. All he right. wants to swallow him whole. And um, at least two uh, amberjacks that I can remember that were over 100 pounds that I've caught in the last couple of years came off of blackfins that they, we were fighting the blackfin. The blackfin dug too deep down and uh, got swallowed. Wow. And. Yeah, and you're not actually hooking the amberjack, and you fight him to the boat, and out when you go to grab him, out comes a blackfin with no no skin on him anymore. Jeez, it, it's, <laughs> wow. it's a dog eat dog world down there. I can promise you. <laughs> All right, so it's a fine line with how far I drop down. Well, and that's the trick. So remember, I talked about the dog pack mentality of fishes. Yes. Okay, so tunas are like that, mahis are like that, amberjacks are definitely like that. So here's the deal. If I'm marking if I'm marking tunas at 100 foot or 125 foot or whatever it is, I want to stay from there above them. Because if I get below them at all, the amberjacks are going to get excited. They're going to start to rise that school up above the black fins, and then you have to deal with both at the same time. Okay. So don't go below the black fins. Well, <laughs> Preferably stay above them 30 to you know 30 feet or so. A blackfin, it's really neat. I'm gonna use my jig as a as a prop. Here's my blackfin tuna. Okay. All right. I used to drop GoPro cameras down in blackfin schools as we were drifting, and what I'd do is I'd use my metered line on my on my reel, 
and I'd mark the school of tunas. And as we got to them, I would take the GoPro camera and drop it down to that level and then attach a poly ball to it. And then I would just open the bale and let the camera and the poly ball drift away in the school as we drifted through them fishing. And so I got to see a bunch of behavior that is really neat. Okay. Here's what a blackfin tuna looks like um, on the GoPro camera. <laughs> they swim up and down, not very far, maybe five or six feet. Okay. But they literally, they put their head up, then they put their head down. Then they put their head up, then they put their head down. And, then, and they're all doing it at the same time. So the whole school, there'll be fish just going like this through the entire school. It's crazy. I, I feel like I feel like Ricky Bobby. I don't know what they're doing my hands right now. So, um, <laughs> but um, the, the great thing about them is since they're always looking up and down, if you stay above them, they'll continue to move up looking for your, you know, looking for the bait. If, if you get below them, they're going to go down looking for the bait. So you want to keep them at the level they're at or above it so that they stay away from the jacks and the sharks and you have a better chance of getting them to the boat. And then what's the motion? You know, you, you went into great detail on the popper, letting it sit for as long as you can stand. How do you coach your guests, your clients, people who ask on the action of the jig, of the retrieve of the jig? So typically I tell you that speed kills because speed jigging in a vertical manner is super effective. Um, but, but here are the tricks to, to jigging for black fins. Um, other than staying right above the school. So let's say our fish are marking at 125 foot. I'm going to drop, um, a hundred foot to start. Okay. When I drop a hundred foot, it's because I have metered line and I know exactly how far down each color is. I can drop it down to the sp exactly a hundred foot and stop it. Um, you want to use a jig that's heavy enough that whatever influences making your drift, whether it's current or wind, uh, keep the jig as vertical as possible. That gives you the most amount of motion when you actually do the jigging motion with your rod. Okay. And then the, the jigging motion is, is one hard jig up where the rod loads and then releases that pressure on the jig and shoots it up. And you're going to take up one handle crank of slack and then do the motion again. So in essence, the jig is going up, starting to flutter, and then shooting again, and then starting to flutter and shooting again. And so that is a reaction bite that they can only get from that motion. It's, it, other than jigging, I don't know how to present a bait in a vertical up, flutter, up, flutter motion. Um, and one other trick I'll tell you about tuna fishing, and, and I, I, I say this because the fish are moving up and down, looking up and down. When you drop your jig to whatever depth you want, I dropped it to 100 foot. I flipped the bale. I'm getting ready to start jigging. I tell everybody to take a two-second pause. Let everything get good and tight. Let everything, the rod will have a little bend to it. And the reason I say that is because now more than just one or two fish have seen that, that jig stop, Okay. And so now when I start my jigging motion, I may get I may get four or five fish to compete against it. So I drop it down instead of as soon as I get to 100 foot flipping the bale and starting a jig where it fell and then all of a sudden was gone. Now it's stopping and it's sitting there and all of a sudden it goes away real fast. That's that a lot of times we'll get a bite right off the bat down low. Um, and then speed jigging, like I say, one to one, and I want to I want to keep that cadence fast. So it's one to one to one to one to one to one, and I'm bringing it up the water column at a pretty fast clip. Now again, as I'm jigging fast, after every say six or eight or ten jigs, I may stop completely, let everything get tight again, and then start my motion again. So if there was something competing for or looking for it, and and they just haven't committed to eating it yet. It gives them another look at it real quick before before all of a sudden it gets gone, and they either have to eat it or, or miss it. And I, I mean, I've been on the boat. I've done this with you a handful of times, and it's still a skill. Like to get it just right, the one to one to one to one. Where is it that most people err? Where you sort of have to? I don't know about overly correct them, but even just fine tune their jig in action. Typically, people don't don't stop on the on the handle turn. Okay. Um, the, the trick is for me teaching people that are first starting out is you start with the handle up. So like as you, as you're cranking the handle around, okay. Um, you want to start at the up position. So you're holding the rod, you're holding the handle. And as you make your lift, 
everything's together. As you come down, your handle arm cranks one time and stops in that up position so that when you go to jig again, everything's aligned again. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah, I don't have a I don't have a rod in front of me to show you, but the, the key is don't overthink it. Start it real slow. The easiest way to start it, honestly, is to jig one time real hard, exaggerated, and take a handle crank and stop, and then do it again, and then do it again, and then all of a sudden you're in a cadence, and it's that one-to-one-to-one-to-one. And so one-to-one can mean one-to-one-to-one-to-one real fast, or it can mean one-to-one-to-one-to-one. And so you can change that speed, but the cadence is the same. It's always one-to-one-to-one. And talk about those two jigs that you showed me. You know, they had different profiles. One's long and sleek. The other one's not quite as. Give us the rundown like you did with the poppers, please. Okay. So I showed these two jigs because they're the the, the big difference is how they're um, designed to flutter. This, I'll start with this one first. This is what we call a center-weighted jig. If you look at all the different angles, you can tell that it's sharp on both ends, and most of the weight is found right here in the center of the jig itself, whether looking from the belly or looking from the side. This jig is designed to sink real fast because it, it's pointed and tapered. It's going to sink real fast. And as you jig it, it's going to shoot through the water fast, and it's going to have some flutter, but it's going to stay in that vertical presentation a lot better than something that fluttered harder. Okay, Center-weighted long jig. Pelagic's of any species, wahoos, tunas, mahis, billfish, doesn't matter. This is, um, this is the jig of choice for pelagics. You're also going to catch all your bottom fish on it too, but this will keep you in the zone more than a jig like this. This is what we call um, a flutter jig, a flutter style jig, where I don't know if you can tell the, from the screen here, but see this uh, right here. Um, this part of the jig itself is flat. Okay. This part of the jig is radiused. Okay, so it's round. So if you're looking at it like this, okay, uh, you can see this side's got a round, or this side's got the round. This side's got the flat. Okay, what this jig does is, is it's still a long jig, but as you jig it up, it's going to go up nice and fast, but it's going to flutter a lot more. So it's going to come down a lot slower, meaning that as it's starting to flutter, whatever. Um, resistance you have whether it's current or wind is going to send it out farther okay so you're going to start gaining um, uh, some angle on your jig um, once you get to about 30 degrees you have half of whatever power you're putting through the rod to the jig you have half of that translating that to the jig um, that's why it's considered or that's why it's called vertical jigging because when you're vertical um, about a hundred percent of the power from the rod transfers to the jig once you get to 30 degrees, like I say, it's half. Once you get past that, it really diminishes the action of the actual bait. Um, so flutter jigs work great when you have a real slow drift um, uh, or, you know, very little current or you're in shallower water where it's okay because you're, you're, you're only going to have a, you know, a shortened uh, jig path. Um, the center weight long jigs are going to be your kind of all-around workhorse jigs. They're going to work in all conditions, whether it's a slow drift or a fast drift. Um, wind pushing you or the current itself where the, you know, the wind is not strong but the current's strong and it's going to move that, that lure away from the boat um, that long center weighted jig is going to be your all around you know, most popular choice so I think um, I think where I want to finish up is talking about how you help guide people with the hookup whether it's the troll or whether it's the pop or whether it's the jig I have that fish on the hook, and there's a better way to get that fish into the boat. It makes it easier on the angler to get it in the boat. You've, I know you've coached me on technique when it comes to actually just fighting the fish. Well, let me, let me since I'm holding up props, let me hold up two more props real quick. Yeah. Um, th these are small lures, um, a bunch of different brands of small lures. Basically, this lure is five to seven inches long, depending on the, the brand and the shape and all. Um, and these have octopus skirts. Um, this one has uh, a really small hook set in it, little piece of cable. Um, and it, the hook comes flush to the end of the skirt. Okay. So, um, kind of flush down there and every shape, every, um, lure head shape makes a different place in your spread. But basically this is the kind of stuff that I would pull to find my, 
uh, where my schools are. And you're going to catch a lot of fish on this, and you're going to catch mahis and tunas and wahoos and everything on it. Um, but you don't necessarily have to rig a bait with it. Um, and then as far as your question is, when you're fighting fish, um, in recent years, we've started having um, more and more shark attack problems because we're having more and more shark population stay with us year-round. So you go to those big places like the steeples, like we've been all day, and you're going to find big concentrations of black fins and jacks and everything else and sharks. Um, so one of the things you want to concentrate on when you're fighting a fish like this is you're not trying to overpower him. You want him to run and make a run, and when he stops, you want to start fighting him um, in a very controlled manner. Short lifts, crank down. Short lift, crank down. Maintain that pressure on him. Okay, Think about it like this. If two grown men or kids or whatever wanted to wrestle, okay, you could grab a hold of each other and wrestle around and wrestle around and wrestle around, and, and the fight would last you know, however long that takes. If I took one of those members and I let them take, you know, made them run a wind sprint, okay, and then we start wrestling, you're go the guy that took the wind sprint is going to get pinned quick, okay? That's just the, the physiology of, of all animals. Okay. So the, the key is this. When he runs, let him run. When he stops, put the, put the wood to him. Lift, crank down, lift, crank down. Keep that short vibe. Don't try to lift way up and get everything back in one time because you're not. You're going to lift, crank down, lift, crank down. Keep that pressure stable and solid on him. As soon as he goes to make another run, let him go. And as soon as he stops, put the pressure back on him. Keep a nice, smooth rhythm. Um, it doesn't matter if it's a trolling rod, a jigging rod, or a popping rod. The key is, if he wants to run, let him go. As soon as he stops, that's when you put all the pressure on him. And like I say, a lot of guys, when you're first learning, they want to lift the rod way high and try to get a whole bunch of cranks down. Well, the pressure changes so much when you're doing that that the fish now can get a half a breath in and take off again. I want to be able to let him run that wind sprint and then pin him to the mat, which means that I'm lifting, getting half a handle crank, lifting, getting three quarters of a handle crank. But the whole time he's under the same pressure. Okay. I follow. Well, right on. Man, uh, I, th I know, again, we could talk, you could talk, and I can't imagine we don't have you to come back and go into more detail because trying to cover trolling, popping, and jigging, you know, with your skill set, you know, an hour just isn't enough time. Before well, the key, the, the key is this for me in, in black fins in general because we have more black fins than yellow fins in the last decade or so. It's such a great fish. And people gloss them over because um, they're, they're finicky. Sometimes they won't eat. They're not like mahis where they're scattered out. So you kind of have to know, go to the rock. Okay, go to this food source, go to this food source. And once you put all those little pieces together, um, we just have a great population of fish here. So I want people to understand that it's there's a little bit more detail in catching them, but, but not it's not hard stuff. It's just little details. So we'll finish up with, why don't you, this is what I like to do, is just to hear what you're basically targeting throughout the calendar year, because certainly we hope someone calls you, books you for a blackfin trip from September to May. You're doing more than blackfin from September to May, and then of course you're fishing from May to September. So give me the, give me the quick calendar review, what, what people could enjoy fishing with Rick Cross and Living Waters Guide Service. Okay, so in the wintertime, let's call it... Um after Thanksgiving till the 1st of March or middle of March. That's going to be um, primarily jigging and trolling, wahoos, black fins um, on the troll and the jig. Um, that's going to be your African pompanos on the jig. Um, that's going to be your, um, sometimes Kobe is on a jig, but that's going to be your jigging and, and trolling time of the year. Once we get into spring, like now, it's going to be a mix of trolling, jigging, and popping as the food sources change. That's going to be your uh, tunas and wahoos early, fading into mahis and billfish um, as it gets warmer and warmer. Once we get to the summertime, uh, for me in the deep, <clears throat> which deep being the continental shelf, 180 foot and deeper, that's going to be where I start catching my uh, summertime bottom fish. Um, uh, groupers of all different kinds, snappers, uh, hogfish, um, triggers, that kind of stuff. And then once you get to the fall, um, that's going to be 
again, everything starts to come back down. So, oh, and I missed one in the summer. We have a fantastic billfish fishery here. Some of the best blue marlin and white marlin fishing in the whole world is off our coast from uh, May through, um, I don't know, late August, okay? Um, and then, like I say, in the fall, that's when your wahoo start to migrate that back down. Your tuna start to migrate back down. Um, bottom fishing is all still open until the end of the year. So you have all your grouper species and snapper species, um, uh, including uh, a fantastic fall sailfish bite, probably one of the best in the world before they get to Florida. Um, so every three months, everything kind of changes. So you never really get bored. Right on. Billy? Man, awesome. Well, I love it. What are you... What's your trip from that list? What What's sticking out to you? Well, so when we went with Rick, first of all, I just want to say anybody that's watching this who goes, hey, I, I'm thinking about booking a trip. Don't even think about it. Just book one. It was one of my favorite trips. And I know at Fisherman's Post, we have to be careful not to put favorites, but it was one of my favorite trips. Uh, it was just amazing. Like it was, you know, action all day. Everybody on the boat was hooking up. Um, just challenging, you know, I was exhausted. I got beat up by an amberjack. Zach got beat up by a shark, which was even funnier than my amberjack story. Maybe we could talk to him about that sometime, but yeah, man, just a great trip. And so I loved it and I, I love hearing how it's, how it's done and all the back end stuff that goes into finding these fish. Cause really it was easy. I mean, we weren't looking for anything. He just like, here, here's a rod. Here's how you use it. And we started hooking up and catching these. I had so much tuna. I was eating them off a paper plate. My friends are like, what the heck? You're eating tuna on a paper plate. <laughs> yeah, man. My, uh, my Rick Croson trip, you know, annually is easily one of the highlights of the year. I mean, and again, I've, you know, to go back to it, I actually, you know, young and naive and had an idea for a fishing newspaper. I went to Texas tackle and wanted to, you know, talk to someone about the chances of me being able to successfully start a fishing newspaper. And as luck would have it, Rick Croson was working at Texas Tackle, and as luck would have it, man, he he basically made all kinds of time for me. He coached me along, helped me sort of visualize the concept, and, you know, consider him a great friend ever since. Yeah. He's one of those guys where it's like, you know, on the boat, crushing fish or not crushing is a good time. Good fun. Beautiful out there. I mean, just amazing. I don't get to go offshore as, as much as somebody in this room, but it's uh, <laughs> it's an amazing time for sure. So I really appreciate it. a fun ride, Gary. It is a fun ride, and I can tell you that you still have a special place in my wife's heart, and that is because <laughs> she came out on a Gary Hurley birthday trip, and mm -hmm. even though it was a Gary Hurley birthday trip, you know, Leslie was the VIP, and, you know, Rick recognized that immediately, so he <laughs> didn't ask me. He went right to Leslie and said, Leslie, what would you like to catch? <laughs> well, I've never caught a mahi. Bam. Mahi in the boat. Now what do we want to catch? Well, I've never caught a grouper. Bam. Grouper in the boat. Now what do you want to catch? Uh, I guess a king mackerel. Bam. King mackerel. And basically, we could do this all day. Leslie, what else you got? And since then, she has understood the affection that I have for Rick Cross and fishing. That's awesome. That's right. Man, Rick, thank you very much. You know, we're going to... Do we make his contact info available? Do we ask him right now to share it with us? Yeah, if you want to go ahead and share it real quick, and then we'll put it in all of our descriptions as well. Yeah, so you can find me at um, livingwatersguidenc.com. That's my website. And my phone number is 910-620-7709. Um, and by all means, text me, because when I'm offshore, I don't have any service. And I like to get back to people, and it may be an odd time. Um and so, yeah, look me up. I'm on YouTube, uh, Living Waters Guide, and uh, I'm on uh, Instagram as uh, Captain Rick Croson. Um, if I can help anybody at any time, I'm, you know, I love to fish and I love to uh, teach people how to fish because people taught me how to fish when I was young. So if I can give back, I, I love doing that. Love it, man. Awesome, man. Thank you for being on the show. So, uh, so looking forward, our next episode we have scheduled, we're going to talk about late spring red drum on top water and that's with captain mike opegard native sun guide service up in uh, the topsail area um short of that billy i think it'd be a good time to do a couple of housekeeping why don't you give our sponsors one more thank you remind our viewers of the contest and then tell them a little bit more about podcast and how they can access everything we have going on now 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I just want to go ahead and shout out Pin Fishing again. You're pretty familiar if you've been into any tackle store, so uh, just make great products. Check those guys out. And then uh, Island Lures, once again, this is uh, one, of, one of Rick's uh, go-tos there, so go check those guys out. They're available in most places. Uh, and then don't forget, the biggest help that you can be to us is we just got our uh, podcast approved there. Uh, actually, it was last week. It worked, but on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and anywhere else you can find uh podcast we're putting it out there and submitting it so but the biggest thing you can do is on apple Podcasts, go rate and review the show let us know what you think leave us an honest comment honest you know five star an honest five star review uh, if possible let us know how we're doing and then also for the contest be sure to text us your fishing photo so for next week it's going to be a junior angler photo and it's gonna be 910-431-5521 be sure to add a description in there what you caught it on, if you got measurements, all that fun stuff. That way we can uh, share it, uh, you know, and obviously include your name, where you caught it, all those things. So uh, that's going to be for the contest. Yeah, we're going to get that. We're going to get our uh, staff pick junior angler photo in the next podcast. Is that right? Like we're going right, to yeah. make that junior angler famous? We're going to make them famous on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be awesome not, not on tiktok we're not gonna put it on tiktok but uh any, i'm trying to talk gary into tiktok next that's our next thing <laughs> i'm in <laughs> awesome that was easier easier said than done so well i'm gonna wrap it up hey cool. everyone thanks for joining us again we'll have rick croson back you know we're having these podcasts come to you we're enjoying them hope you're enjoying them and until next time thank you guys very much